0: Hi, everybody. My name is Remy. Welcome to the For The Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, guys. Jen Hatmaker here. you Very, very happy hostess of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show today. Really glad you're here. We are in the middle of a series that is so fascinating to me. It's called For the Love of Faith Groundbreakers. And we are talking to some of the leading voices out there who are um, asking really, important questions and pushing on traditions and um, forcing us to sort of consider new perspectives. And they're doing it with courage and grace and grit. And I am learning so much from my guests in this series, not at all, excluding today's guest. So you may or may not know my guest today. And if not, I am so excited to introduce you to her because she is someone I really want all of you to be paying attention to. Um, She brings such an important perspective to the table right now that literally every one of us needs to be listening to. So my guest today is Caitlin Curtis. So Caitlin is a um, Native American Christian author and speaker. Um, She is an enrolled member of the Potawatomi Citizen Band and um, someone who grew up sort of in traditional evangelical faith. And so Caitlin writes on the intersection of indigenous spirituality and faith in everyday life and the church. I mean, it is a powerful perspective, and she is a beautiful writer and an amazing leader. Caitlin travels all around the country speaking about faith and justice within the church, um, specifically as it relates to indigenous people. So in 2018, she was actually featured in a documentary with CBS called Race, Religion, and Resistance, um, and she was speaking on the dangers of colonized Christianity. I mean, she's going she's going hard, you guys. Um, her first book, Glory Happening, Finding the Divine in Everyday Places, was literally just a wonderful, beautiful, artistic offering. If you haven't read it, you will just love it. She's a very lyrical and beautiful writer. Um, she's actually in the middle of writing her second book, which we're going to talk about um, on the show today. And so on top of all this goodness, all this amazing leadership, she's also a mom to two boys. Fabulous partner to her husband, Travis, a tried and true coffee drinker. And I'm so happy she is on my radar. I I was introduced to Caitlin's work about maybe a year and a half ago on Twitter of all the places and begin listening to her powerful story and her powerful perspective and her very courageous leadership inside the church. And I am telling you, I have learned a lot from her. You are too. Wait till you hear this interview. She really dials into some concepts um, that have the potential to just remain invisible or dormant for those of us in the majority culture. And so I can't wait for you to listen to our conversation. I think it's going to intrigue you. I think it's going to inspire you. Um, I think it's really going to make you think. And she is just a delightful and a warm and a wonderful human being. And so with that, you guys, I'm very pleased to share my conversation with the smart and the talented and the fierce Caitlin Curtis. Okay, um, Caitlin, I'm really, really, really glad to have you on today. Thanks for joining the show. Yeah,
1: I'm so glad to be here.
0: You, um, I'm trying to think where I very first like picked up on you and your work and what you do it was definitely online um, mm. on Twitter, which is you know where good feelings go to die. <laughs> it's all I can really tell <laughs> at this point, <laughs> but there is some goodness over there, including you and. And then we met face to face at in Grand Rapids, right? This last year at the yeah, Festival of Faith that's and Writing. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so it's been interesting what to watch you just since then even, um just catch so much traction in in your work and in your ministry and in your leadership. And um to begin watching all these other people discover who you are and start sort of following your lead. It's that has this been kind of an exciting time for you? Yeah. yeah. It's been unreal. Really. Has it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You've handled it really, really well. And, um, and I think you're leading in a lot of strength right now. We're going to get into that, but first, so I've told, I've told our listeners a little bit about you and there are tons of facets um, of your life, frankly, that I completely identify with. You're a beautiful writer, you're a mother partner, You're a daughter and a friend and an advocate, but First, if you don't mind, I would love to hear you talk about the Potawatomi part of your story. Um, so you're an you're an enrolled member of the Potawatomi Citizen Band. So obviously, you can possibly speak for every single person um, in the Potawatomi Nation. Um, but I would love to just hear from your perspective um, more about your people, your history, um, yeah. who the Citizen Potawatomi are today, mm-hmm. um, and and sort of your background growing up in that group.
1: Yeah. So first, thank you for saying that I don't represent all Potawatomi people or all natives in general, because that is the, one of the worst stereotypes is that we're just one big monolith, right? Um, Right, All native people are the same. So, um, yeah, so, so my story, um, I was born in Ada, Oklahoma. And so I grew up in Oklahoma and, um, also in New Mexico. My, um, my dad worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So he was a, a police officer hired to, basically police other natives is what the BIA does. And um, so it's not always great, um, mm. but that's what he did. And so growing up in Oklahoma, um, my, so the, the Potawatomi citizen band is in Shawnee, Oklahoma. That's our headquarters.
0: Sis, you know, um, I went to college there, right? Yes. Yes, <laughs> you know, Oklahoma I, Baptist. I, I
1: connected it. And um, yes. yeah, so I know exactly where you went. Yeah. Um, so Shawnee is where our tribe is. And so, um, you know, we've uh, grown a lot. Um, in the last few years, we have, um, a lot more resources. We have our own Mm. language program, um, where, um, Justin Neely is, is someone who teaches the Potawatomi language that I've been learning from. Mm. So just doing, um, you know, with what we have in Oklahoma, which Mm -hmm. to some people is not a lot, but some people it is a lot, um, is just trying to connect us back to who we are. So the Potawatomi are originally from the Great Lakes region of the United States. And, and so, um, there's still, so we have a few different bands or groups and so there's still Potawatomi in the Great Lakes. Um, like in Michigan, when we were there for the Festival of Faith and Writing, I was able to spend some time with some of the Potawatomi people there, which was really meaningful for me. Um, it's the first time I got to go, um, and see the water and to see this place where my people are from. And that was, that so, was your
0: first time last yeah, year. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And so I was able to go
1: to the water and just be there and, and listen and, and remember. Um, and so some of the Potawatomi, um, we had our own forced removal. So, you know, the Cherokee trail of tears is a forced removal. The Potawatomi people have the trail of death. And so some of our ancestors were forced out, um, and down into Kansas. And so, um, that was a forced removal that, uh, so we have a, we have a prairie band also. And now we also, then some of the people ended up going to Oklahoma and that's where my, my ancestors are. And so that's where my family, you know, is from. And, um, you know, the effects of assimilation and of erasure are very real still. And I think that we, I think that all indigenous people are striving to return and ask what it means to know who we come from and our, know our ancestors. Right. Um, But for some of us um, it's just that constant, you know, asking what are the effects of assimilation? What are the things that have been taken from us and how do we gain those things back again? And so Mm -hmm. for me, that has been, learning my tribe's stories, learning that we have a language. I didn't even know that growing up. And so really, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, understanding and learning all these things for myself and now being able to teach it to my own children has been really meaningful for me.
0: So you describe yourself, um, as a Christian mystic, So sometimes in evangelical circles, of course, the term mystic is like, woo-woo, you know, what Mm -hmm. what the heck, what's going on here? Does that mean magic? Is it like sorcery? You know, like there's not a real clear understanding around um, around that term. It has more of a negative connotation probably. And so will you deconstruct the term mystic with us? Um, and what it actually means, and like it, it explain it in terms of this is what you believe about God, and this is what you believe mm-hmm. about your role in the world, and this is how this informs how I live out my faith.
1: Yeah. So the term mystic can actually be problematic on a lot of levels. So of course you have the evangelicals who are terrified of it and um, terrified, you know, dark magic and and sure. witchcraft. And then sure. the other side of it is kind of this uh, new age hippie idea of we're Christian mystics, but we're going to basically appropriate other cultures and call it mm. being a mystic. And I find okay. that that's also really problematic because you're you're erasing cultures who, if you want to say, are mystic in nature. Um, mm. Cultures that, uh, to me, being indigenous means that you know we are we are seeing sacredness in everything, in every mm. creature, in every part of the planet and every person, right. We're seeing the sacred nature of God. And, um, you know, that has also been co-opted, um, mm. by hippie culture and by new age, sure. by, but also in Christian mysticism. Um, I think that, uh, there is a danger of that. And so mm. I think that we have to be really careful, you know, for me, um, I haven't even used the phrase as much lately because mm. of that problematic side yeah. of it. Right. And so, yeah. um, you know, the very nature of being indigenous is to you're you're on um, you're in that space of trying to bear witness to the sacredness of the creator and of this world. And so um, but on the other hand, I've learned so much from, you know, um, Christian mystic thought, you know, um, reading uh, Richard Rohr and learning sure. about Franciscan theology was one yeah. of the first times as a native woman that I saw myself reflected in something of Christianity because growing up Baptist, you know, there's nothing about oh no um, the earth you know mm-hmm. meaning anything it's just you that's know right. like there's nothing you're right. you're subduing it that's all you need to that's do exactly right? right. And so to find even a, a vein of Christianity that um is willing to say no the creatures of the earth matter and, and mm. they have a voice and so that was meaningful for me and I think Gave me hope that um, that I can find my place, and that mm-hmm. may mean that I, you know, don't use the term mystic at all in the future. Mm-hmm. It may mean that I use it, but I, you know, have this conversation with it, trying to make sense of how it can be problematic on both sides, right? Um, Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated thing, and and just as just as identity conversations are complicated, and what sure. language do we use? Um, I believe that all people are wired to be mystics. I believe all people are wired to be poets and artists, you know, and in whatever way that comes out of us, Sure. Are, that we are all looking for God and we're all looking for sacredness and that it is always available to us. It's always like on that other side of the veil sort of idea. Right. And you're always, we are always being invited in. Um, and, I, and in the spirit of that, I think that all people and all creatures were all um, entering into that sacred space Hmm. constantly.
0: I love it. And I couldn't agree more. And that's something I've had to um, learn as an adult. Uh, I was also raised Baptist, like you mentioned, and um, uh, well, just so much was omitted, omitted, including Mm -hmm. creation and um, just how holy um, creation is as well. So to that end, Um, You talk and you write very eloquently about your personal journey, uh, not just to deconstruct, but I think this is super important for us to learn from you, Um, not just deconstruct, but decolonize your Mm -hmm. faith. Um, So uh, can you tell us uh, how, how you began to do this? Because again, if this is not a part of your childhood and adolescent vernacular, you know, if you were sort of raised to assimilate, this has mm-hmm. to start somewhere in, I don't know where this started for you and, and, and what you've learned about your faith since. And, and frankly, why it's crucial for every one of us to do this really, mm-hmm. no matter our heritage, this is, mm-hmm. this is mission critical for the church.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I am, um, you know, so my, um, my faith in high school and, uh, through early college was just um, unwavering, you don't ask questions. I was sure. the poster child of the purity movement. I was sure. a worship leader. I did all the, I did it all. And that meant that I trusted every leader and I didn't ask any questions. And, um, you know, I remember the first time I went to uh, um, my, a world lit class in college and someone, we were talking about a story from the Bible and someone was like, this story is ridiculous." and God is stupid. Like why would God do this? I remember I like went home that day to my husband and I was like clutching my Bible, just like crying (laughs) because I I thought I was gonna go and like teach everyone something, you know. Uh Uh-huh. Sure, of course. uh, I didn't. And so that was the first that was the first chip, I think, of Hmm. realizing that. And for me, um, deconstruction Hmm. came first and then it led to this decolonizing work. And Hmm. for me, of course, that came with beginning to learn who I am as a Potawatomi woman and asking those questions. I never asked when I was younger, uh, because I didn't know I could ask them. Right. Of course. And so, um, you know, in America we can't ever go back to what once was before we were colonized. You know, um, we have conversations about like reparations. How do we return the land? How do we, um, how do we do these things? I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that every day, any person can do any small thing or large thing to help break down systems of colonization, you know, and on a large scale, let's talk about, um, in the church, our, our missions frameworks and how they are actually colonizing people all over the world. And, you know, let's be honest about that on a smaller level. Let's, um, make sure that our, kids libraries are diverse and have different stories in them um on another level let's make sure that we're not um repeating toxic stereotypes toward native people you know um things like that in my mind it's all um it's the work of everybody and it is possible to do these these tiny things that do they matter they really do matter and if we're parents you know leading our children in, in a better way is the thing that's going to lead them to lead their children in a better way. And that's right. We have to know that that's
0: um, possible,
1: you know? And Absolutely. so, yeah, I just, um, yeah, I think that, that I appreciate you it.
0: saying that because, um, sometimes the, the, the gap, it, the, the work feels daunting. There's so mm-hmm. far to go, but there really is an a crude effect of, um, of measures, both big and small, certainly on our own minds and souls, but definitely generation to generation,
1: Mm -hmm. um,
0: that it really does build. And so you mentioned parenting, you have two boys. Mm -hmm. So personally, like if we can sort of zero in on your family, how are you raising your boys? How are you helping them learn about their heritage and celebrate it? How are even underneath that, how are you equipping them to become, Um, critical thinkers who recognize the diversity of their own heritage and can take their rightful places in society and, and teaching them about God and faith and their role in the world. I have to imagine it looks pretty differently than the way faith was handed to you as a kid, right?
1: Yeah. 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 You know, I find that, um, our children are so much um, more ready to think critically and to engage the hard things of the world than we think they are. We, actually agree. Better. Um, they're so beautifully resilient. You know, I can, I can have one conversation with my kids about being native or being part of or, um, racial reconciliation conversation, something about justice. And they will in, in their own way and in their own time, and in their own beauty, will take it to whatever next level they need to. Like they will do it on their own, you know. You know they're they're um, coming home from uh, Black History Month, and they're talking about Ruby Bridges, and you know, and and um, they they know. Like my seven-year-old knows that the world is hurting. and that he has an important role to play in it. And, and we have, you know, we're having conversations about privilege because, you know, Uh I'm mixed, I'm white and native and my boys, you know, they're white and native. And so we have white skin. We need to know what that privilege means, but we need to know that that we have to step into our story as indigenous people as well. And so holding, holding all of those, um, intersectional conversations is hard, but, but they get it. They really do. And, and a native friend of mine reminded me that in, um, like in Anishinaabe, in our native culture, we believe that children are closest to God because they're fresh from God. They're the freshest from God. Right. And so, um, when we deny our kids, these important conversations, you know, we're, we're not allowing them to dream and to, Mm -hmm. and to dream of a better world. Like they have they have so many dreams and they have so many abilities to make things happen. Even as kids, I, I didn't go to my first protest alone. I took my boys and, um, and they led me, you know, like they did all the chants, and they knew what to do more than I knew what to do. And it was so beautiful to see that, um, this beautiful act of resisting and fighting against injustice is so natural to them. They just, they know it in their bones. And that gives me so much hope for, the future because I can hand them a little and they'll know exactly what to do with it. And we ah, have to trust our kids with that. You know?
0: That's good. That's really good. I see, uh, I see that in my kids too. I'm really, really hopeful for their generation and what they're capable of and prepared to receive and do um, with their little slot on this um, earth. Hey everybody, Jen breaking in for just a second. I am, as you know, a huge advocate for counseling and feel like sometimes we just need a little guidance from a trusted source who can help us look at things objectively and find a way forward. So BetterHelp Counseling, it's an online resource that offers licensed professional counselors and they're specialized in issues like depression and stress, anxiety, relationships, family conflicts, grief. Honestly, you name it so much more. Um, You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe, private, absolutely confidential online environment. Uh, You can even schedule secure video or phone sessions or chats or texts with your therapist. And so best of all, it is truly affordable, which hinders a lot of us from good counseling. And so for you guys, the listeners of the For the Love podcast, BetterHelp is giving you 10% off your first month with the discount code for the love. So if you're needing a little help getting to that good change in your life, go to betterhelp.com slash for the love. Okay. So one more time, betterhelp.com slash for the love using the code for the love. Okay. Back to our show. I wonder, you started, we started this line of conversation a minute ago, but I I wonder if you could take it a bit further for us. How do we create systems of thought or a faith of culture that don't just lift up but help center mm-hmm. um, people who have been or are currently being oppressed? Um, what do you think that looks like? What, what sorts of... Um, Practices. What kind of thoughts do we have to begin putting into rotation in order to center people who have been chronically decentered?
1: Mm-hmm. One of them is just actually having this conversation about whiteness, because I think mm. um, I think what I'm finding is happening is when when in black, indigenous, or people of color point mm-hmm. out um, systems of whiteness or systems of racism, right. I think that white people see that as a personal attack and instead we need to be constantly understanding that these things they do start as personal things but these are systems that we have created in the united states these are um systems of injustice and we are complicit in those systems so Uh you know when when um when we point out you know um you're participating in racism or mm-hmm. you know you're participating in systems of whiteness. We mm-hmm. the church needs to understand that the humility in saying yes, we have been complicit in these systems. We've helped even maybe create these systems. Right. This is not a personal attack. This is a okay, let's then get to work together, right? And then that leads to what you're saying which is decentering whiteness in any way possible. And, um, and I know that that's really abstract for people. And that's why I always start with buy books, buy books, buy, um, buy books, by people that are different than you. Um, I have that, a list of books by indigenous, 25 books by indigenous authors on my blog and, and, um, go there and buy three of the books and, um, and read them. And then you're, you are stepping into the story of someone who is not like you And you're learning from us and you're giving us money, which is empowering, right? Absolutely. So that's why I always, I always start with books, but I'm a writer, but start with artwork that's from, you know, like give your money, give your time, Mm. give your um, attention, right? Mm. And and this whole idea of passing the mic, you know, um, it can't just be, pass the mic, but then you narrate everything like passing Mm. the mic is really like, give, give power over and let someone else lead and see what happens. And, and I think that is happening, but it's also, we have so much work to do. I have to hold the bigger picture in front of me all the time, Mm. but I have to then bring it to these tiny tangible things that we can do every day, which is books and art and, you know, that kind of support, I think that, that people can grasp because it is tangible enough. Oh, I can buy a book. I can read a book, you know, start there. If you need to do that.
0: That's great. It's the lowest wrong on the ladder. Anybody can grab it. Um, and you'll be shocked at how much those, um, those early, that, that early channel of input can change you and how quickly you can climb the ladder of sort of, um, overturning some of these systems. I, I know when I, um, grabbed the lowest, the lowest wrongs a few years ago, as someone who just had a real sense that, uh, this, this, this injustice was passing me by and I didn't understand it. Um, cause I, of course, my entire life have been centered. So mm-hmm. I, it's very possible to never know any of this. If you're white, it's possible. Yeah. You can, you can stay hunkered down in your silo and assume that that is normative. It's normal. Um, we, I had a podcast last year with Lisa Sharon Harper, who just did this masterful job of explaining the concept of whiteness um, in a way that was new, even to my ears, and I've really immersed myself, but it is possible to change these things. I'm thinking about my listeners right now just going, gosh, I don't even know where to, this feels like above my head, or I'm not sure how to grab onto some of these ideas. I'm just telling you that what, what you just said, Caitlin, is that when we pull up a chair and decide to learn from um, indigenous leaders, from black leaders, from people of color, um, it matters. Mm -hmm. It does. It does. It really does matter. It really begins to form and shape our ideas, our perspectives, our perceptions, our concepts, and you could be actually shocked where you could be one year from now. If you decide to sort of humbly put yourself um, under that leadership. One thing that I, to, to, to that point um, that I admire so much about you is the way that you personally amplify voices um, from people of color, from people who have um, lived their lives in the intersections of society. So I wonder if you could just briefly tell us the teachers that you are really paying attention to right now that are, that are teaching you, that are, that are really uh, mentoring you or are showing you a path that you're following.
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I'm working on my second book right now. And so obviously I am immersed in, um, so much indigenous literature, which is because I want to, um, you know, quote other indigenous writers so that when you read my book, you'll, you'll go and read their books. Right. And so that's been really important to me. I mean, just as many books as I've been able to get my hands on, um, Twitter has been, Twitter is the most amazing resource to me. Um, that I never expected. And I'm not even sure I can give you the names, but, but like, well, Rabbi Danya is obviously someone who has meant so much, um, as a Jewish leader, um, black. Oh my gosh. Um, even friends in Atlanta that I've been meeting with, um, my black friends in Atlanta, where we were able to have conversations about how is our oppression different and how is it similar and interesting. And how do we, um, move forward in that, you know, that idea of intersectionality by Crenshaw, like, how do we, how do we practice intersectionality as indigenous and black people and how do we move forward together? Um, gosh, um, my queer friends, you know, friends with disabilities. Um, I think that we need to be having so many more, um, just conversations across these divides, um, interreligious conversations, you know, um, conversations between, uh, straight, you know, and queer, you know, like all of the, all of these, um, identifiers and all these, these labels that we have, not that we need to get rid of the labels, but we need to be able to say, okay, we're labeled this and you're labeled that. How do we talk about our labels together? And, um, and I just find that, that Twitter, um, can be horrible, but can also be this really amazing place where
0: those conversations happen. If you're willing to, be humble and do it and dig in. Um, And so really, I I agree with you. I think um, when used well, that can be a really also good front door just to say, okay, I'm going to sit and listen for a while. I've said this before, but one thing that I have learned so much from is Tasha, Tasha Morrison's policy in her. um, uh, I've had Tasha on the podcast, everybody. So there's an all link to our old um, episode, but she leads a huge um, racial reconciliation organization called Be the Bridge. Yeah. And she has this, on, this private Facebook group of people who are interested in learning. And it's big at this point. Gosh, it's over. It's two or 3,000 people. But um, her rule, and I love this. And, of course, it's led by people of color. It's moderated by people of color. Um, is if you're white and you're coming in here to learn and you are – this is sincere – you're not in here to fight. Um, you're in here to learn. Her rule is you can't say anything for three months. Not one thing. You can't respond to anything. You can't reply to a comment. You can't put your inject your opinion. And I, I I chuckle because it's like telling white people they can't inject their opinion. It's so shocking to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know their opinions have always been centered. And so watching, but that I'm telling you that three months matters. That that if you are willing to listen and learn, um, you can be shocked um, actually how far the needle can move in your own life. Um, let me ask you this question because you're uniquely equipped to answer it. Um, what would you say to to indigenous people, to black folks, to people of color, um, who are they're tired? Frankly, they're mad, angry. Um, they're tired of being angry for having to raise their voices every single day. I'm um, just for justice, just mm-hmm. for equality. Um, and they are weary. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say? What would you say to them?
1: Um, something I learned from Austin Channing Brown has been that it's okay to be angry because I grew up not knowing what anger was. I never allowed <sighs> myself to feel angry about things. I just kind of, you know, went with the flow of everything and said it was fine. I felt emotions like sadness and empathy. And, but I never, I've never allowed myself really to be angry or to grieve that kind of way. And, um, and it has been so freeing, especially within the church to be angry, to go to church mad every week has been so good good for me. Um, and I, I would say, um, you know, we are, we are expected to give answers to, to white spaces, Mm. just out of the goodness of our hearts. You know, I can't tell you how exhausting every year is around Columbus day and around Thanksgiving for me, because people, there's no other time of year in Halloween now as well, but people, Mm. especially at Thanksgiving will all of a sudden start messaging me, asking me Uh, to help them, you know, read the right books to their kids and, you know, and I, I'm, being traumatized just on my own because of this yes. holiday and trying to understand how do I even live through it and what do I teach my own kids and so the pressure that's put on us mm. just to be teachers our work is automatically more traumatizing and so self care has to be part of our um, life and some people can't afford therapy I mean I I someone helped me pay for therapy I couldn't afford it but I needed it so badly and. Um and it's saved my life and um you know being able to have have people say, I will I'll pay for this for you because your voice matters. And it's been validating for my own voice to know that my voice means something and that's so good. We are teaching, and so we need to um hold that and be able to hold self-care with all of the stuff that we're constantly battling, if that makes sense.
0: It makes perfect sense. And what I would add to it as a white girl. To my white listeners, because that was really beautiful and profound advice um, to all my listeners of color, but um, for the white people who are um, interested in learning and you want to learn, this is a space that you need to and want to know more and um, and you want to put yourself into um, sort of a, a humble place of being taught, being led, being mentored, um, I, I want you to hear what Caitlin is saying, which is, this sort of entitled expectation that any of our friends of color or leaders of color or authors of color around us are expected to do our own heavy lifting is incredibly unfair. And uh, the truth is, like with anything else, if you're sincerely interested, you know how to learn. Mm -hmm. Like You know how to Google you can put yourself into environments in which you are not the majority voice and you're just sitting there as a listener and a learner. Um, And so I think all it's so, this always rattles white people because um, it rubs up against their good intentions. Do you know what I mean? They mean well. Mm -hmm. And so do your own work, like just do your own work. It's not that hard. It really isn't Mm -hmm. to find, there are a million lists online. Um, Google, where do I start if I wanna learn about indigenous history? I promise you, you will not be lacking for any sort of of resource. And so right. I really appreciate you saying that. Um, because that is one of those perspectives that often just doesn't even occur to yeah. well-meaning white people. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to something you said a second ago. You talked about grief. Um, you, you recently wrote an article for um RNS, uh Religion News Service, um, and it, it was convicting. Um, and, and from that article, I took away your your really salient point that in our sanctuaries, in general, we do not provide an open, safe space for people to grieve, um, to bring their grief right in the doors. Um, and so the pain of our hurting is relegated to these private places, right? It's just not given space um, to to be active and aired right in the middle of us all. And so I think that was a really insightful and important observation. Can you talk a little bit more about that and why you believe it's so important to hold room in public, in our churches, for people who are grieving, who are oppressed? Mm -hmm. Um, And how do we do it? Like, what does that look like to you? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I wrote that piece because, um, a friend of mine at my church had lost her daughter and, and was, you know, it was right before Christmas and, you know, I checked on her that morning and she was sitting right in front of me in worship and left. And I was, I was so well, so I was feeling the energy of just everyone. I felt like just that, that time of year is so beautiful, but so hard for so many people. And, but I knew her story. And, and when, as soon as she left the room, you know, I had that moment where I'm asking myself, like, you know, is this invasive? Should I go, you know? And I was like, whatever, I don't care. And so I just went and I sat with her in the bathroom and cried. And I was, I was so angry because, you know, I imagine sometimes what if people just lose it and they just want to like wail in the middle of church? Do you know how much our churches would freak out and would be, so uncomfortable and would be like, I don't know what you're doing. You know, this isn't the time or place. And, and when I went, I went to Twitter and I asked people, how have you seen grief um, sort of suppressed by the church? And people's answers were heartbreaking, you know, the way that we hold funerals and it's all about a celebration of life. And it ignores the fact that we've, someone has been, you know, taken from us out of this space. And how do we keep going now? You know, there's no we don't give those resources. Some, some churches do it. Some of us do it and it works, but um, I would say communally we, we don't. And, and so there's this one side of these individual um, hurts and this grief, but then there's this communal, you know, I'm, I'm grieving the history of America in which the church has been complicit in and killing indigenous people and genocide that that God's name was used in that the government worked alongside the church to do these things to us. And so I carry that into church with me every week. Um, It's difficult to, to know that and, and then to carry the injustice stories of other people of color and to wonder, does anyone in this white church know, does anyone care um how do we how do we actually practice lament and grief and i know people have written on this and people have examined and questioned this but if the church can't come to grips with its complicity in these things like i don't think if we can't learn to grieve together then the individuals grieving are going to be lost too like if we can't do it you know if we can't come together and have a lament service for women who have been abused or for, you know, these systems that we've created, like I said earlier, these systems of whiteness, of colonization, of toxic patriarchy that, that have, that have been a part of the American church, like how American white church, how do we, how do we do that? We
0: have to, we have to talk about it. Yes, we do. I, um, in our church here in Austin, since, I don't know, probably three months long at this point, we, at the end of every service, uh, you know, we're down here in central Texas. And so we're pretty close to the border, um, where there is just so much suffering Mm -hmm. and separation of families and such a criminalization of these Brown bodies. Mm -hmm. And, um, at the end of every service, uh, and we're, we're down there right now a lot. This is where we're focusing our energy. We um, read out loud, right before communion, letters that people, um, teenagers and young adults, have written in the detainment camps. Mm-hmm. And they've written these prayers. We went down and said, Can, if you write a prayer out, we would love to read it in our church. And so we read their prayers in Spanish, mm-hmm. and then we read them in English. And it is just, its they're devastating. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, the whole sanctuary is just so sobbing every time and it's this grief this shared grief but it's interesting to watch sort of the holy spirit's power crack through those places of grief not just joy not just victory not just celebration not just you know tra la la church at uh, just business as usual but like making a little bit of room for this lament this absolute heartbreaking sorrow has been really powerful in our sanctuary you also Um, You decided to organize a way for pain to be validated and recognized in your church um, in a really, really powerful way. You called it a Hannah Day. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that and what that has meant?
1: Yeah. So my friend Shelly actually had done this service before and she organized it for women around Mother's Day. Women who, you know, Mother's Day is one of those days at church where it's like, we're going to celebrate moms and motherhood. And then you have all these women who can't have children or who have lost children and fathers too, who are just grieving and and hurting. And you're here sitting in a service being happy and giving away flowers. And how hard is that, right? That's that's directly ignoring such a a visceral, um, pain. And so my friend Shelly wanted to lead this. And so I, I was kind of there for support and led worship and did some songs. And, um, we do not, um, we do not know how to be quiet by ourselves or together. And so I think that being in that place, you know, they did some like tangible things, like they made, um, things with ribbons to remember, the children they lost, or they did, they did these things that were very, um, tangible to help them, you know, process. But for me, you know, I have never lost a child. Um, I've never miscarried just to sit there and just sit in quiet and be with them and play music if I need to, or just be quiet or let someone talk to me if they need to. But we are, um, we're so wired for, healing to go a certain way and for our services to go a certain way. And, you know, for these things to happen a certain way, a very Western way of thinking, um, we don't, we don't want to sit in it. Like we don't want to hold that space no matter how hard it is. Um, and it's, it's sad because we lose, we lose a lot if we don't do it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think that the depth that that brings to our faith communities, um, is a really like an uh irreplaceable piece of the whole story of God. You know, mm-hmm. if if you care about the Bible at all, there are enormous mm-hmm. whole swatches of it that is nothing but grief. Yep. Nothing but lament. I mean words of lament, songs of lament, prayers of lament, sorrow. Yeah. Um and, and they weren't um precious about it. Like the no. the 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 people of God have never been Um, self-conscious even about it, but rather this always seemed like something that God made so much like room and space for the grief and sorrow of his people. And so I'm not sure when we decided that all of our expression of Church or faith communities here in America had to be shiny and all victory and all happy, but that's just half the story at best.
1: Yeah, I mean, at and, best, right? And when we focus on this individualistic faith, even individualistic sin, individualistic salvation, we are missing that communal aspect. Like I, after I wrote that piece, um, a woman whose um, family survived the Holocaust, a woman emailed me and said. Your story means something to me. Your story as an indigenous woman and the genocide of your people means something to me as a Jewish woman with family members who survived the Holocaust. And, and like to read those stories and then have that solidarity with someone else. Like imagine if our churches, you know, if we looked at each other and said, I see the communal pain of your people and I also see your resilience, but you can't, you can't um, always see the resilience unless you see what you came out of. And if we just actually practiced that, how different everything would be. And then we would decolonize because we would see very quickly That's right. what we've done. Right. Mm,
0: that's a great point. I like that story. Hey guys, Jen breaking in for just a quick second to talk about an offer from a great new sponsor, and you will see why I think so in just a second. You know, tons of us grew up in a time where the internet like wasn't even a thing. I often think, how in the world did my generation make it through our education years without having the World Wide Web at our fingertips, I mean, honestly, to write reports or buy textbooks or have study help. I literally can't believe we did it. We are champions. Well, this generation, including two of my college kids, can benefit from that and the amazing resources of this online study site. It's called Chegg, C-H-E-G-G. So whether you need textbook solutions or expert Q&A, Chegg is the leader for online study assistance. So you can tap into Chegg's massive library of textbook solutions. You can search their database for literally over 24 million solution sets for subjects as diverse as accounting to mechanical engineering. You can learn how to solve the toughest problems with video walkthroughs and practice sets. And what's awesome, is that Chegg is literally affordable for students. And they have a special offer for our listeners. So for $5 off your first month subscription, go to Chegg.com slash For the Love. So that's C-H-E-G-G. And use the promo code For the Love. So that's Chegg.com slash For the Love to get $5 off your first month with Chegg. Great, great resource. All right, guys, back to our show. So if people want to hear more from you, which obviously they're going to want to, they can go just straight away and read your book, Glory Happening, which you're such a good, gifted writer. It's just, um, a uh, really, really beautiful reading everybody. Like it's, you, you just sort of get lost in the, in your words and inside the pages. It's you're a writer's writer. Um, and so can you, can you just talk for a minute about, about glory happening and what you were hoping that your readers would take away from it?
1: Yeah. Um, so that book was, um, 50 short essays that I wrote, they were basically reflections on these different parts of my life, present day and past and just all over the place where I basically just drop you into a story and you have to go with me. And, um, but I, I love doing that. And and then I wrote these prayers with them that were actually meant to be poems because I think that prayer is poetry. And so I wanted them to read like poems. And, um, you know, the idea is that, we tend if if you grew up in the in the evangelical church you think of the glory of god as this like light shining in the clouds god is far mm-hmm. off in heaven right and we're mm-hmm. down here you know hoping god notices and sure. um, shines his glory on us and that's that's not what glory is glory is this very tangible day-to-day reality of leaning into the sacredness mm-hmm. of god and and it's, it's everywhere, and it's in all things, and it's um, beautiful, and and it's even in pain, right? It's even in grief right. that we find the glory of God in that process. And so I kind of just go through these different um, types of glory, I guess, is is what I called it. And it's just these stories, and, and it's an easy—you know, they're easy, short reads. Um, I wanted people to just be able to kind of grasp a little at a time as much as you need and um, enter into those stories with me. So,
0: so great. And you mentioned you are writing book number two. Congratulations. Can you just give us the quickest, like, here's the 30,000 foot view. This is what I'm writing about.
1: Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm telling my story as a Potawatomi woman and, um, also this idea of, you know, how do we all return back to the pure childlike place of God where we are truly known, not mm-hmm. even, even past identity. How, how do we enter into that kind of naked place, right? With God, the pure place of knowing and being known. So it's, it's that, but through my story.
0: That's so great. Does it have a title?
1: Uh, right now the working title is native, the origins of God, the origins of us.
0: Nice. When's it coming out? Um,
1: I think it comes out next summer with Brazos press.
0: At a girl. Are you, how much longer do you have to write on it? So ask the writer to a writer.
1: It's due in April. So I'm, okay. I'm making, I'm making good time. So we'll see. Uh-huh.
0: How, <laughs> nice for you. how nice for you. I have one due March 31st and I keep doing the book math. Do you do book math? Like, okay, how many words do I have left? And how many weeks yes. do I have? And how many, how does that break down day by day? And I'm like, okay. Oh, <laughs> Oh no, I need to cut a chapter out. It's (laughs) It's so real. Um, Okay. So we are asking everybody in the faith series, um, these, these questions. Here's the first one, just top of your head. So if you could just pick any faith hero to sit down over like your favorite dinner with, who would you pick?
1: Um, I grew up loving, um, Sojourner Truth. So I think that, that would be really wonderful.
0: Oh, that's good. Uh, That's a great answer. Yeah. Can you imagine? Can you even imagine? No, It would be amazing. (laughs) What about this? Do you either have this, this could be from a big pool, either, either a verse or a, a spiritual idea or a quote or sort of a mantra that would capture maybe the core essence of your faith.
1: Um, there's this, uh, phrase in Potawatomi, it's the phrase for basically for good morning, it's minnowabin and, um, minnowabin minnowabin. and in Potawatomi, our words, are verbs, like, like our nouns are active. Right. And so Mm -hmm. minnowabin literally is that time when the sun rises and it's light shines and, Uh. and it's saying it's good that that happens. And I think that that's been everything for me that, it is good oh, when light shines on us. It is good when we bring things to the surface, when we're honest, when we are vulnerable, that it's good, that it um calling things into that space is a good thing. Learning and mm-hmm. being humble is a good thing. And so that phrase from the moment I learned it and understood it has has stuck with me and has been so important to me.
0: Uh you have to title At least some future book that. That is <laughs> so profound. That is really profound and a beautiful word. I wish I would love for that to make its way into like the general lexicon. That is a wonderful and a gorgeous concept. Um, Like I'm dead serious. I want to see that on something, a podcast. I don't care what you do, a book, something that is a beautiful, beautiful umbrella. Um, Okay. This is our last one. We ask every guest, every series, this question, Um, (coughs) excuse me. And you can answer this really however you want. If, if it's, profoundly important or absurdly silly. It can be anything. And we've had all answers. Yeah. Um, but it's also from Barbara Brown's Taylor, who you probably love. Um, mm-hmm. also one of my great teachers to, um, yeah. connect me back to earth and creation. So what is saving your life right now?
1: Um, my husband and I are watching, um, uh, Madam Secretary. <laughs> on Netflix, and uh, it's given me a little hope in politics, so just a little. Um, but also, the family dynamic on this show is beautiful. It's, they have three teenage kids, and, and they just, like, really love each other. And it's just—our family's in one of those seasons where we're dreaming ahead. We're on—you yeah. know, we're just— We're on the cusp of some new things, and so having that kind of what will our life be like in ten
0: years, or you know that kind of thing.
1: It's just one of those shows that allows us to dream and to think ahead. And I just really love. I just need that right now.
0: Um, Yeah, my mom is watching Madam Secretary right now, and I we can't like get her to answer the phone. I mean, (laughs) she is so she's gone. God, we'll find. We'll we'll see her again when the series is over, I suppose. Uh, But she is equally loving it. And I will just say, as somebody who's a click ahead of you as a parent, um, I love that you're dreaming forward. I love that you're thinking about your kids as teenagers because it is just the most... It's such a fun season of family. And and you're just going to love it. And when I was parenting where you're parenting right now, kind of in the elementary, earlier, younger portion of parenting... Um, I just decided when I was your age and my kids were their age that I was going to like the teenage years. I just decided I'm going to, we're going to, that's going to be a really connected time in our family. That is something that I'm going to enjoy. My parents enjoyed having teenagers. They were into us. And so I always just, and I'm just telling you, you can tell your mind what to do. Right, right. And we are, I mean, our kids drive us crazy, of course. Let's see. In the last two weeks, we've had um, one kid ineligible for his sport and another at Saturday school. So it's not like it's all going great, but, but you're happy. But, I mean, I still like them, you know, yeah, I'm still like, okay, wonderful. you can still live here. I love um, it. yeah. So I just, I really, I, that makes me a heartful, happy that you're looking ahead with like anticipation and excitement about your next yeah. 10 years. Cause you are absolutely going to love them. Um, I want to tell you something I'm going to say to you that I am very, very proud Of the way that you are deeply stewarding your story, your heritage, uh, and your voice right now. I think you're doing it with a great deal of courage, which is saying something these days, and um, grace, which is also saying something these days. Um, (laughs) Those are both in short supply. Um, And so the fact that you are doing them well equally, and I, I find you... Um, leading with a lot of strength and um, f- clarity of conviction, I'm noticing the people around who are going, okay, this. So this is a perspective that we've left out, um, yes. even as we've sort of been working on other um, places of intersection. Right. And so um, I I am really proud of how well. You are centering your story and your community. And I can't wait to see, I cannot wait to see sort of the walls that crumble around you. Um, it, is, it is really something to watch. So thank you for your work. Um, and thank you for stepping into it. And um, thank you for sort of being the lead blocker for so many people behind you. Um, that is important work. And I think you're gifted for it. You're called to it. So well done, you. Thank you. You're welcome. So everybody, um, all of Caitlin's stuff, I'll have linked over it on the podcast page at jenhatmugger.com. All of her, her book, her blog, her, all of her socials, everything that we talked about, we'll link up the article that we mentioned that she wrote. It'll all be there. So if you want more Caitlin, you got more Caitlin. Um, and so anything else, anything else you want to just like say, this is where you can find me or this is what you can do or any of that.
1: Just find me on Twitter, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's, right. yeah, that's your pulpit. It's, yeah. your, it's your best pulpit. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. Okay, She's a good one. You guys. I'm so pleased to introduce her to so many of you today. I'm telling you, you're going to want to go over and follow her on her accounts, really start listening to what she has to say. I think she is just a really like fierce yet gentle teacher one that every one of us can learn from and listen to. And I so sincerely hope you will. As mentioned, all her things will be linked over at jinhapmaker.com under the podcast tab, where you will also find the entire transcript of our conversation, bonus pictures, links, all the stuff. Amanda builds that out for you week after week, um, just as a service to you, as a tool and a resource for you. And so um, thank you for listening. Thank you for keeping your mind open. Thank you for being such like a... Just a really great community who is able to hold tension, able to hear another perspective, able to um, ask hard questions, and stay into stay in in hard places with one another. I'm just I'm always very very proud of this listening community. Um, and to that end, thank you guys for subscribing. We have so many subscribers. Um, thank you for rating and reviewing this little podcast. It's done such wonders for us. And um, and when you like an interview, share it. That is fabulous. Just. Throw it around on your socials on Insta or Facebook or Twitter and um, share the interviews that you love with your people, that conversations that you really want them to hear. And so we're happy to be a partner with you as you advance conversations in your own community. So um, much more to come in this amazing series. We've extended it because we had too many fabulous guests that we wanted to talk to. And so um, this series is a little bit longer than normal because it's just that good. Um, So come back next week, more, um, important and interesting conversations ahead. Um, we're not afraid. We're not afraid of any topic. We're not afraid of any conversation. We find a lot of healing and liberty inside courageous and vulnerable discussions with one another. So thanks for joining us, you guys, and see you next week. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.